Okay, good morning everyone. Sorry I am running a few minutes behind today. Um, we are in Galatians, and of course we're a couple weeks out from the last time we looked at this, so by way of review we'll want to just glimpse at chapter 1. We're going to pick up around verses 18 and 19, that will be where we begin the new material and enter into um, an important phase of Paul's argumentation. But before we get there, let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. What we saw last week when we began looking at the text itself is we see Paul really laying down the authority of his apostolic office and that given him directly by God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that Paul is establishing his lines of authority as the Father to the Son, the Son to me, and there is no other human influence. So there's no chance that I have this wrong. Important for us, at least I think as we get into chapter 2, I think we'll make it there today, no problem, is verse 4, but of course we should start at verse 3, that's where the sentence begins, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So the death of Christ the giving of himself for our sins, has effected a deliverance from the present evil age. And that is a complicated thought in St. Paul, or at least a, a difficult thought that would be more accurate to wrap your mind around, and that is that even now, on account of the death of Christ, a new age, a new creation has come, Thus, we as Christians leave behind us the evil age, which paradoxically is still present. Yeah, that's the, that's where it's a little difficult to wrap your head around. But this we will see is very important for Paul's way of thinking as to why it is, in the old familiar terms, that the law is not necessary for justification. I'm going to say the death of Christ by which we are justified puts to an end, the evil age, which includes the law. All right. So, obviously, in verse six, he gets right down to brass tacks. I'm a I, brass tacks. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Of course. It's no gospel at all. But Paul, pulling no punches, says, Anyone who preaches anything to you other than what we preach to you at first, let him be accursed, anathema. 
And he goes on to argue, look, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not trying to please anyone other than God. And so I come not with man's gospel, but with God's gospel, which I have through the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. Of course, we know that the opponents of Paul came into the churches in Galatia after and were basically saying to them, hey, Paul was right, we're justified by Christ, but you also have to be circumcised and live as a Jew. That's what Paul's reacting against. No, it's Christ alone. That's what's sufficient. We're going to see that argument made. But first, he's really establishing his authority and the fact that this gospel that he received is not from man or through man. There's no possible way he got it tainted. With all of this rhetorical ink spilled, you might probably guess that it was the case that Paul was slandered in this way. That, hey, Paul isn't getting this right from the source, that is, right from the disciples of Jesus who walked with him, talked with him, who are in Jerusalem. And so Paul is going to spend a lot of time combating this by saying, well, you're right, I didn't get it from them, I got it from God. And then as we go into chapter 2, it's going to be, and what I receive from God, I set before them and they approved. Okay, So we can kind of, by way of shadow reading, make an assumption about what the accusations against Paul were. Last or two weeks ago, we left off at verse 18. Now, Paul had mentioned his conversion, how God had revealed, that's the language of apocalypsis, revelation, how God had revealed his son to Paul in order that Paul might preach his son amongst the Gentiles, and how Paul didn't consult with anyone but more or less went straight about this business. Then in verse 18, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's Paul's typical way of referring to Peter. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, In other words, this is 15 days after three years of preaching. This is a short time. And while they undoubtedly talked about the gospel, it's not as if he's there getting a... This isn't seminary. He's not there for a four-year instruction from Peter and from James. So obviously he is there. Now, what we've got some details we can look at, of course, to the, the Lord's brother. There is, it's a well-known open question as to whether uh, Mary remained a virgin or whether she and Joseph consummated, consummated their marriage in the natural way after uh, Jesus was born. All, that's a well-known open question. I really don't want to jump into that debate Maybe, maybe if you took in the biblical data at face value, at least as it's often interpreted in Eng- English translations, you would look at many texts and say, well, how could it not be referring to natural siblings? But the rub comes in when you think that for about 1900 years of Christianity, virtually everyone believed that Mary remained a virgin. So there are other 
ways of reading and thinking about these texts, including here, one might surmise, for example, that James, as the Lord's brother, was a a son of Joseph's previous to uh, his betrothal to Mary. Possibility. And there are many other such possibilities and explanations which I don't want to exhaust. Um, One thing that you can look at if you look at the study note on um, chapter 1, verse 19, in regard to the phrase, James the Lord's brother, the study Bible simply says the first of Jesus' four brothers. And if you look at Mark 6, 3, you're going to see these names given. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, as well as a non-specified number of sisters as well. And of course, some would say the language of brothers and sisters can be extended family, so that's a possibility as well. But as you can tell, the, the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible just take this at face value, that he's got brothers. Now, obviously, at most, they would be half-brothers, because is Joseph really the father of Jesus? No. So even in that respect, they'd be half-brothers, even if they were the progeny of, of Mary and Joseph. But one need not necessarily make that leap. Interestingly, and I think to some degree regardless, If you have uh, James, the James mentioned here is the author of the book of James. And then Joseph, we don't know much about him, but Judas would be Jude, the author of the book of Jude, or at least it's surmised that that would be the case. Let me see if there's anything else here. Yeah, so um, in regard to this, James, the first of Jesus' four brothers, reference to Mark 6.3, though not one of the twelve, he became a prominent apostle in the Jerusalem church, references all throughout Acts. Two other men bore this name, that is the name of James, in the New Testament, James, the son of Alphaeus, and this is sometimes James the lesser or James the shorter, James the younger, it could also mean, Uh, but he's one of the twelve. And then there's James, the son of Zebedee, who is James the Great, and um, that is like in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John, that's the James, James the Great. All right, a little bit of a tangent there, but based on the phrase, the Lord's brother. Do we have any questions or any comments, anything I made less clear than it was before? Okay, there's one in the back. I have two comments. All right. First of all, back to uh, when Paul says, uh, I'm astonished Mm. in the start of that that verse. Uh, many of the people that work with Mormons and Mormonism uh, use this verse, uh, I mean, as a uh, almost a crowbar mm. and uh, or a mallet, one or the other. But I mean, it it's they think it's almost speaking to Mormonism and Joseph Smith because that's exactly what happened. Uh, another gospel. Oh, was, I see that. Um, 
Yeah. So critiquing Mormonism and Joseph Smith, that yeah. he did receive this additional gospel, gospel whatever yeah. was written on the golden plates or whatever. Right, <laughs> by right. The angel uh, Maroney, Maroney, which yeah. has an irony because, does he say it here? No, not yet. When he says, oh, foolish Galatians, um, that's he's basically calling them morons. Of yeah. course, Maroni and Moron is awfully close. That's close. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I just think um, that's really interesting that it's so powerful, but yet speaks almost to that. Um, Correct. It it really speaks to any divergence right. from the true gospel of Christ that understands itself falsely to be the gospel of Christ. That is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. And in fact, an accursed gospel, according to St. Paul. So there is one gospel, that which he delivered, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else falls under that anathema, including that of the Mormons. Absolutely. Which is no gospel at all. Right. You know more about it than I, but it is not a religion of grace. It is a religion of do your best and hope you get in, yeah. and that's uh, it, it's not good news. It's a shame that uh, Vicar didn't get to finish his study on uh, Arianism because this is what exactly what what Mormonism is and Jehovah's Witness is total Arianism. So right, this idea that uh, Christ was a man who became God. Yeah, yeah, and was it's not is not eternal mm-hmm. or co-eternal. And yeah, and I think one of the differences, Arius held that the Father was God, but even the but the Mormons derivate from that and say there was a time when the Father was a man and he became yep. God. So yeah, it's a that's crazy. Yeah. So then my other comment is regarding marriage, uh, specifically with Joseph and Mary. I I don't know. I'm asking, it, is it true? I know it's true today that. Um, Marriage isn't considered a marriage without consummation. Mm-hmm. So, was it? What was their custom? Uh, that's a good question. I think it would have been outside the normal expectations, but not unheard of. Some posit, look, I mean, in 2,000 years, there's been any number of theories, but some posit a great age variation and that um, Joseph would have even, in fact, been betrothed to her and, and marrying her as a widower himself and as one who was looking at it um, in terms of being a benefactor and not a sexual relationship at all. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you whether you find that plausible or not. But I do know in the ancient world such arrangements wouldn't have been as unheard of, perhaps, as they are today. I mean, today it's just assumed. And even in kind of in Christian theology, I think of our old pastorals, that it's not a, from a certain angle, you look at a marriage, it's not a valid marriage unless it's consummated, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm not sure that that would have necessarily been the case. And certainly you have some, what should we say, ex- exceptional circumstances in this case. I mean, even if you were 
So this is kind of one of the uh, one of the arguments to a softer argument that put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and maybe you did intend to uh, marry her and consummate the marriage, but then from her womb comes the Son of God. And you might think, oh, well, that changes some things. Um, maybe it would be better to conduct ourselves in a marriage. And there are examples of Christian marriages that uh, both spouses agree to uh, not consummate the marriage and to live not in a sexual uh, marriage, but um, to live as quote-unquote brothers and sisters, um, and yet still uh, be bound by marriage for the sake of uh, good order and for the sake of um, they, they have companionship and mutual help and all of that thing, uh, all of that stuff. Why then marriage? Well, so that you're in the public eye, it's like, well, whether they consummate or not is none of our business, but they live together as married, and so there's nothing sinful in this respect. So again, I, I, what I do think you have in, let's say, the first century is uh, some broader circumstances. And of course, it's just alien to us too because we think of marriage in ro largely capital R romantic terms of like two people attracted to each other and choosing each other. Marriage in the ancient world even not that long ago, was primarily financial. And so women would look to uh, be married and men would marry women for the sake of, uh, of not having them be destitute or otherwise turn to a life of sin. So there's, I'm not speaking directly here to Mary and Joseph, I'm speaking more broadly. Please. Um, I've heard it said that they were betrothed and that that would be a binding agreement um, before mar before actual marriage, mm -hmm. that the celebration would take place in the betrothal. And it just occurs to me that if that were so honorable a condition, how it's been decimated in these latter days because everybody's a fiancé, you can break it or have a boyfriend and call him a fiancé. Yeah. And I think we don't look at it with the same rigor that they did. Correct. Because I think the whole, the families had to agree to the betrothal and the betrothal then was celebrated and then it went for about a year. I've heard that. Yeah. And that's I, anecdotal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in regard to those details, I'm not absolutely certain, but I do know that betrothal was seen as much more binding, even though there was no consummation until the wedding proper, and, and there was the expectation that they'd be living sexually pure and decent lives. Um, it is it is different. Is I mean, as late as the 19th century, you see in our Lutheran pastorals arguments made that um, we should look at engagement as tantamount to betrothal, and anything less than that is a breaking of your word and tantamount to divorce and this kind of thing, but that's really gone by the wayside. And yeah, and that's all I'm going to say about that. It's a complicated pastoral issue, to be sure. The problem today is largely that people get engaged and then do the due diligence. They get engaged and then go to premarital counseling. I've often thought we ought to have pre-premarital counseling, like pre-engagement counseling. That would be the wisest. Uh, I mean, much to my chagrin, so many of the, so many of the. <laughs> premarital courses that you find out there, books that you find out there. Chapter one is, should you be in, get engaged to this person? Well, if I'm reading your book too late, 
<laughs> so it's really at counter purposes um, with the way American culture works, where you're not even reading those books or looking into it until you already are engaged. Yeah, there's much to be said here. I, it's amazing to me how ruinous the church and our culture has become because it used to be very well understood that this is how, as a Christian in this time and place, you date. How, as a Christian in this time and place, you marry. Engagement, marriage, the whole thing. How you live and engage with your broader family and with your church. These things used to all be spelled out. They are not. There's nothing left but ruins. I feel like an archaeologist walking through it going, oh, here's an artifact. I wonder if we could put that to use. Probably not. It was at the top of some column. You know, uh, where's the column? So, I don't know. If the Lord keeps me here long enough, that's one of the projects I, I have is lay out a, at least for this parish, I mean, that's what I'm called to, is lay out a prescriptive, hey, this is what dating looks like. Because there are principles that don't go away. It's just that we've not been taught them for generations. And just very, I mean, very radical things like, oh, you don't marry anyone other than a Christian. Hey, that's step one. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? And then step two, if you're Christians, you're brother and sister, right up until you're not. So that sets pretty strict parameters for dating, doesn't it? And also flies in the face of Americanism, where, hey, you know. So what can I get away with? Can I get to first base or second base or third base? What can I get away with? The answer is nothing more than you'd get away with your flesh and blood sister or any of your other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the purity with which you should face dating right up until... Now, I can already tell generationally in this room that none of us experienced that or were taught that or did that or look at life that way, and it all strikes us as quaint and legalistic and unnecessary. Well, the alternative is what we have today, where the percentage of people entering marriage with... Uh, Sexual partners in the in the background is well above fifty percent, and uh, it's a recipe for the divorce rate we have and everything else. But anyway, that's for another class, another time. So humble ourselves and go back to how things were done of old might be a really wise way to move forward with some of these things. Yes. Uh huh. Dating somebody yes. who, was, who was Catholic. They, oh, yes. They called the two together and said, we don't agree to this. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom there. I know that sounds legalistic and impossible, but the wisdom of not a Lutheran not marrying a Roman Catholic is if they both stick to their guns, it's going to make for a miserable marriage. And it's going to make a miserable marriage for the for the Lutheran if he, as the priest says, you know, usually the priests make the Lutheran man say, okay, we'll marry you as long as you promise to have your children raised Roman Catholic, which just about is a to living torture for the poor Lutheran man. So, no, there. I mean, there really is a sense, too, even in the fractured church where you don't necessarily need to limit your dating although it would be really wise to even limit your dating to someone who has the same confession as you and the same communion as you. But before you do, in fact, get married, 
you have to have an understanding of like how this is going to work. So the wedding happens, and it's Sunday morning. Where are we going? And then we have children. Are they are they being baptized as children or not? And where are they going? And who's leading the family devotions Monday through Saturday? And on what basis are those? You see, so those things have to get sorted. Otherwise, you're setting up the couple for nothing but conflict and failure. And where there's conflict and everything's so fragile anyway and not supported by society, there's uh, there's just not going to be family devotions and there's not going to be regular church attendance or there's going to be begrudging attendance by one of the parties. It's going to be a disaster. So, yeah, this is one of the things we really have to... Our church realized this way back in the day. Any of you old enough to remember the Walther League? Yeah. The Walther League was designed to put Lutheran young people in touch with Lutheran young people to facilitate Lutheran marriages. We probably need to do something like that again. It'll probably be online, <laughs> largely, but uh, we need to do something like that again. Um, okay, so anyway, I don't know how we got quite that far down the rabbit hole. It's my fault, but there we were. Okay, so irrespective of what your position may be um, in regard to the exact definition of brother, verse 19, nonetheless, Paul introduces this James, not one of the twelve, as the Lord's brother. And he's recounting that after his conversion on the road to Damascus and after he had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for three years, then yes, indeed, he went up to Jerusalem, but only for a very short time. He visited Peter, saw James, and that's it. Verse 20, he swears an oath, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. That the Again, by way of shadow reading, this seems to be a slander made against him by those teachers, the, the opposition who had come in behind him. We don't know the exact nature of it, but just on its own, this isn't something Paul does unless he's emphatic and perhaps emphatically contradicting something his opponents had said about him. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. All right, we can do just a very quick uh, geographical sketch here. Um, geography mentioned in verse 17, where, um, <clears throat> yeah, Paul says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. If you look at uh, the study note on 17, um, this is pro- in regard to Arabia, this is probably the Nabataean c- kingdom located in the area around Damascus and Syria, founded in the 2nd century BC. Um, we'll turn to the map on 1886 in just a minute. And then skipping down a bit, Damascus, we'll see, you can see the color map 4 for Damascus. Um, this is one of the cities of the Decapolis under the supervision of Syria's imperial legate. It came under Roman control in 66 BC. At Paul's time, it was an Abatean city and had a large Jewish population. Okay, so we'll keep that in mind, and then we'll go over to verse 22, where we just were. 
we've got these geographical, or verse 21, we've got these geographical references to Syria and Cilicia. These are regions combined into one Roman province with its capital at Antioch. See map on 1886. Paul mentions his post-conversion work here to show again his distance from Jerusalem. So without further ado, if you're in a Lutheran study Bible, 1886 is what you want to turn to. And if you uh, don't have a Lutheran study Bible, you should. So if you look at um, if you look at this map, it's kind of important generally to see what's going on. So we saw, for example, Arabia, and this is the Nabataean Kingdom, located in the area around Damascus in Syria. So if you are on the right-hand side of that map, you see Syria with Damascus and the Nabataean or Arabian kingdom um, kind of surrounding that to the east and southeast. And there, of course, Syria and Damascus mentioned. So this is immediately where Paul was, where he was converted and where he preached. Do you see Jerusalem down by the Dead Sea? That's a long ways away. Now, on a map, it's down to Jerusalem, but geographically, it's up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on a mountain, and so that's the language of up to Jerusalem. Okay, and then uh, let's see what else is mentioned in 21. Uh, Syria and Cilicia. These are also going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Syria is already where, located where we have Damascus already stated. And then Cilicia is up north. If you follow the coastline along past uh, Syrian Antioch, you'll see Cilicia. So Paul says, look, I was in Damascus and preaching in Damascus and around Arabia or Syria and to the east and to the southeast, so far away from Jerusalem. Then I went up to Jerusalem very briefly, these 15 days, and then, verse 21, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Judea being where Jerusalem is. So in other words, I was far away and I was I only went up once for 15 days. And then if you just peek ahead, since we're kind of on the nitty-gritty of geography and chronology, if you can keep you know your your finger on page 1886 and flip back to Galatians now chapter 2 verse 1, you're going to see that then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. All right. Well, there's some dispute as to that, that 14 years when to start counting. Does that mean 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem or after the time he spent in Syria and Cilicia? We don't know. It's part of the tangle. It's part of the difficulty. But what can we gather from this? That his entire, from his conversion in Damascus, his entire ministry for 14 plus years included only a 15 day stay at which he saw only Peter. The rest of it, he, and, and briefly James, but the rest of it, he was on his own for 14 years preaching and teaching. 
So, again, Paul may be contradicting slander from his opponents and a slanderous narrative that they had told. He may also, I should say like and or, be setting forth this idea that he received the gospel from Christ Jesus and went about preaching the gospel and by no means went up to make sure um, with uh, the pillars at Jerusalem that he had it all correct. And by having it all correct, we're really only talking about one thing here. Is salvation for the Gentiles apart from circumcision? That's really what we're talking about. Paul's saying, for 14 years I ran around preaching that Gentiles can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ apart from circumcision. Please. Question. Uh, these three years that Paul was in the Arabian desert, uh, maybe it's from my misunderstanding in my tour of evangelical churches, but uh, I understood that he did no preaching during that period, that it was all the Holy Spirit equipping him for the ministry. You mentioned a number of times that he preached uh, during this three-year period. Uh, on some clarification. Let on me that. look again at the study notes and see if um, anything is explicit there. Because it may well be my assumption. Let me see here if I can find anything. Okay, in verse 17, if you drop down to the fourth line of the study note, here the editors of the study Bible write, Some commentators believe that Paul went to Arabia to begin mission work among the Gentiles. So that is, if somebody sees something more clear, let me know. But that might describe the discrepancy, that some, some view it maybe as a time of equipping and others as a time of, uh, of preaching. My, uh, my own personal assumption for what that's worth, I didn't really look into it all that much, but my assumption was preaching. And that because the gospel that Paul preaches at its root is very simple. It could be explained directly by Christ Jesus in the same way that Paul came to the faith by the revelation of Jesus Christ, he now has that very same revelation to preach. And from that revelation, that very simple revelation, all manner of different, diverse, wonderful things can be preached, but from something so simple as Christ is true God, you could preach what? Almost endless things, and especially when you tie that in with Old Testament scriptures and texts, as Paul so often does. So my working assumption is that Paul would not have had nor needed a three-year period of catechesis where the Lord is, you know, revealing himself. Okay, Paul, good morning. Here I am. Hope you finished your oatmeal. Let's get looking at the scriptures together, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of my assumption. But again, I'm willing, more than willing to be corrected on all of that. Um, if there was, uh, good evidence. Okay, so far so good in a general sense? Yeah? All right. So just to round out chapter 1 then, um, 
maybe just recovering verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So first journey to Jerusalem, five days there. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So this is a beautiful statement. Particularly because you have the definite article, the faith. This isn't personal faith. This is the faith, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's risen from the dead. Our sins are forgiven for his sake, etc. He is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they, namely uh, the churches of Judea, glorify God because of Paul, but they didn't know him by face. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now this second visit to Jerusalem is very important. Uh, commentators have a very hard time dating this. Does this coincide with Acts 15 and the council there in 49 AD, or does it not? And it's just simply too difficult to try to cover the argument for why that may be the case or may not be the case. I commend to you uh, Andrew Doss's commentary on Galatians. I think he spends like more than a dozen pages pretty easily on that question and related questions. So if this is your thing, it's kind of like a whodunit. Um, otherwise, I will just say that this is, we don't know the exact chronology. And there are many, many places in Galatians that are like this. In fact, we're going to come up on a place where we don't know the exact meaning of what Paul's saying. There's at least three acceptable meanings that all make perfect perfect sense, but we can't decide definitively to the exclusion of the others. All right, so he's going up after 14 years to Jerusalem with Barnabas, who is a Jew, and taking Titus along with me, he says. What's, what's Titus? A Gentile. Is Titus circumcised? No. Remember, Timothy is circumcised, but Titus is not. Both of these Gentile fellows. So this is key. Verse 2, I went up, there again because Jerusalem is on a mountain, because of revelation, again, apocalypsis. So Paul is receiving direct revelations from God, from Christ. So in this case, he's specifically told by God, by Christ, Go up to Jerusalem. So I went up because of a revelation and set before them. Now that's going to be the key grammar to understanding what Paul is up to. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The grammar here is almost impossible. This is uh, uh, probably exactly what he means, though. Um, he senses that at this time that those who are in Jerusalem may not agree with him, that he has been preaching this gospel he received from Jesus, that the 
uncircumcised are saved by faith alone and don't need to be circumcised. He understands how contentious this is going to be at this time. So, it seems to be the case that then Paul takes those who seem to be influential, we later find out who they are, specifically in view, uh, Peter, James, and John, so that he can set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, as the broader context will show, but also that language set before them. Okay, what's going on here is Paul's not in doubt about his gospel. He's not going up there going, oh no, they might reject me and I might have to go backtrack everything. That's not what's going on in Paul's mind. If we just take those words and pull them out of context, it may seem that way. What is much more likely the case going on in Paul's mind is that Jerusalem, if the, if the pillars at Jerusalem reject him, then you're going to have a split. You're going to have a Gentile church and a Jewish church, which is no church at all, because Paul has been proclaiming that the very thing that separates Jew and Gentile has been broken down in the body of Christ and destroyed in his crucifixion, so that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul's been preaching all of that, and if the Jews here via Jerusalem draw a line and say, no, you have to be, then Paul's going to go, all of that was in vain. It doesn't mean he thinks it's wrong, and it doesn't mean he's going to stop, but it does mean disaster. Okay. So that's why Paul's concerned that it's going to be a disaster. That's why he pulls them aside privately. But look, even just in the grammar, he sets before them, look, this is what I've preached and what I've taught. And we already know that Titus is there, and Titus is exhibiting the same faith in Christ, the same receipt of the Holy Spirit, etc. And so... Titus is his in-flesh proof of God's work through this gospel. So Paul's not backing down at all. He's just slinging it out there to see what they say. All right, so just once more, um, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Now, Titus becomes the embodied proof that the pillars in Jerusalem accepted Paul's gospel, that circumcision and the falling of the law is not necessary for salvation. Why? Because if they had rejected him, then Titus would have been forced to be circumcised. But since Titus wasn't, Paul's gospel is approved. Now, Paul's going to have a mixed relationship with this. In the first place, he doesn't care. He's already established, <laughs> in the absolute sense, he doesn't care. Because his authority has already been established directly by Christ. So, those who appeared to be something are as nothing to him and as nothing to God. You're going to see that kind of language pop up. But the flip side of that is, they did approve. And they did not require Titus to be circumcised. And that's all the testimony Paul needs to come back to the Gentiles now and say... Jerusalem is with me. So what are the what are Paul's opponents? What have they come behind him and said? 
Jerusalem isn't with Paul. Jerusalem's with us. You have to be circumcised. Now Paul's dropping the hammer and saying, absolutely not. Not only did I receive this from Christ Jesus, but it was corroborated by Jerusalem, and the proof is even in Titus' flesh, his uncircumcised flesh. So the opponents are liars, slanderers, and they have no ground whatsoever. Um, with Peter, when he got the vision of the sheets coming down the animals, is that before this incident or after this incident? Oh, I don't remember. Because when he goes there, because he, he doesn't require that. It's, it's got to be before, yeah. Because he doesn't require, because he goes in there and says, yeah, you need, because he has Jews with him in that case, and he just baptizes that whole family and yeah. his relatives. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head. And my mind is going, there's something in Mark where Jesus does something. I think it's in the context of wool washing hands, but I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure if it's Mark 7 or not. But Mark puts in parenthetically that in doing this, Jesus overturned the law. That is the dietary laws and restrictions. So this question of like, when was the ceremonial law abrogated is a question that tantalizes the early church and even goes back to the sayings and doings of Jesus himself. And then, of course, Peter receives his vision. And I think that that's before all this, but I'd have to go to Acts and look specifically, refresh myself there. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a hard issue for us to wrap our heads around because when you're a Jew, what distinguishes you from all of the pagans is the fact that you're circumcised and follow the dietary laws and follow the quote-unquote church year of the Old Testament and you do all these things and everybody else is outside and that's what inside is, is inside. And now... Your Jewish Messiah comes and says, hey, it's just faith in me and anyone outside by faith in me. We all have the same status of salvation. That's really hard to wrap your mind around. So I think that if we, the more we can grasp hold of that, we can understand how wild and strange and mysterious this was. And even St. Paul finds it wild and strange and mysterious. You can see this, for example, in Ephesians, how he marvels that this is the mystery of God and his ways higher than our ways and a mystery of God before the foundations of the world now revealed and how he's astonished to be preaching this, that salvation is to all people on account of Christ um, and apart from the law. So, yeah, it just helps us to kind of wrap our minds around how difficult this was. And we're going to see, we're going to see Peter, even though he knew better, lapse and fall back into this Jewish way of thinking. That's coming up in a because the other of chapter comment two. I have is when the Exodus happened, they they were told when they celebrate the Passover, if yeah. you have a slave and that wanted to celebrate with you yeah. or the Gentiles that were coming, right. they can if they fulfill the obligation. So they knew Yeah that the Gentiles were supposed to be with them or they were supposed to be converting them. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's and that conversion line was circumcision. To participate, you had to be circumcised. And then there was this whole like the whole this created a class of like God fearers of the Gentiles who like believed in and worshipped Yahweh, but didn't want to be circumcised and follow the entire lifestyle of the law. And so you have these God-fearing Gentiles who are kind of in this gray zone, in but not fully in, by stringent Jewish standards out, um, but certainly appreciated uh, <laughs> because the bo- because the border and boundary was the law. Yeah, because when Elisha tells Naaman, um, I have to go and yeah. do with my thing, but I'm taking some soil with me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, you've got all kinds of wild stuff in the in the Old Testament, and and all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament about how the temple is going to be for all people, and how God desires that the Gentiles be saved, and indeed, in specific instances, they are. Naaman being one of those, uh, the widows with Elijah and Elisha, I think, being other examples of those, etc. So, yeah, there's lots of hints and foreshadowing, but for a first century Jew, it's just not what was expected. All right, so just picking back up in the middle of the argument here. Verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, Pseudadelphus, secretly brought in, who slipped into spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. See, there's the sense that Paul isn't concerned about being wrong. He's just concerned about them being wrong and it splitting the church. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. That is to say, they listened to what he had to say and they were like, yeah, exactly. They didn't say, oh, but you forgot this, you forgot circumcision, you forgot the dietary laws. No, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. Now, notice, who had entrusted him with the gospel? Jesus. So they accepted that Jesus himself had had entrusted Paul with the gospel. This puts Paul on the same level as the original disciples who saw him face to face and received the charge face to face. So this is an important move because it is those in Jerusalem themselves, the original disciples who count Paul to be their equal, equally entrusted with the gospel. So When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also through me for mine, that is, my apostolic ministry, to the Gentiles. This is, in other words, what's fascinating here is 
Paul is saying my apostolic commissioning is identical to and equal to that of Peter's. Of course, this looms large then in the Reformation, particularly the Lutheran Reformation, with the language of the Pope and this idea that everybody has to go to Peter. Well, Paul didn't. <laughs> so if you drop down, this is great. Um, if you drop down to, yeah, there it is. Um, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, that footnote. Regard to the language of entrusted, Paul regarded himself as a steward of the gospel. And then now quoting from the Confessions, St. Paul clearly affirms that he was neither ordained nor confirmed by Peter, nor does he acknowledge Peter to be one from whom confirmation should be sought. So much for the papacy. And I think you could see that plain as day in the text. Like, there's just no interest. It's not like Paul's like, well, gosh, this guy's the Pope, so I should probably make sure he confirms me or ordains me. No, there's no sense at all. He outright it says that they all, Peter included, recognized that his apostleship was from Christ. That he, we might say capital H, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, also worked through me for mine. Peter to the circumcised, me to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. All right, now, finally, he lists who these are, who these, quote-unquote, influential folks are. Verse 9, with his continued sentence, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so if you look down at your study note on verse 210, you'll get the references to this and you'll, re you'll recall these from your reading of the uh, of a couple of Pauline texts. So, remember the poor, the Jerusalem pillars recognized the divine legitimacy of Paul's calling and work, but they had one request, that Paul and Barnabas administer financial relief for the saints in Jerusalem who were caught in persecution and famine. This became a major task to which Paul conscientiously devoted himself. And references here to Acts 11, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Corinthians 8 through Nine. You can recall those places where Paul's talking about, hey, please give, that money is going to Jerusalem, to the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, and this was in part to demonstrate the church's unity. Largely, these were gifts of Gentile churches to Jewish Christians. All right, um, so... Paul didn't need the imprimatur of the folks at Jerusalem, but he received the imprimatur from the folks at Jerusalem. So this um, is a double death blow to the opponents who have come in before him requiring circumcision. Um, he is now saying to the Galatians, they are in error on all counts. All right, and then we've just got two minutes left. So what we're going to what we're going to hit is um, another episode that comes, and it may be an episode cited by the opponents. I mean, if I was one of the opponents, I'd cite it, 
And that is to say that, well, wait a minute, Peter had a change of heart. You, you may have met with him in Jerusalem and all this stuff was said and done, but Peter had a change of heart because when he came to Antioch, he acted differently. So Paul's going to react and respond to this occasion in which uh, Peter does come to Antioch and acts in a way contrary to how Peter had acted in Jerusalem and does so in such a way as to even sweep up Barnabas and all the other Jews. So Paul sees a meltdown here, even after it was decided in Jerusalem and there was nearly a meltdown. Now in Antioch, there's about to be meltdown number two, and Paul's not having it, so he calls Peter out to his face. Now, what's going to be in view here is ultimately in service to his argument to the Galatians that at these various instances, uh, the scandal of Faith in Jesus plus living like a Jew was brought up and definitively settled. So his argument is going to be, um, now are you bewitched by this? Don't be. Anathematize this false gospel of faith plus the works of the law. It's by faith alone in Christ. All right, well, let's pause there for the week. We will pick up next week at chapter 2, verse 11, with Paul opposing Peter. The Lord be with you.